Hello and welcome to Alan and Overy's launch. My name is Bianca Vasilake, and I will be your host on the podcast for demystifying both the process of getting into law and where this career might take you. Today's episode, which is the first episode of launch, is there is more than one way into law. And in order to talk about her more unconventional journey into law, I have with me today Mamia Kwafo Akoto, who is one of our senior associates in the banking department. Thank you very much for joining us today, Mamia. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So let's just delve straight into it and start with the very beginning, which is when did you become interested in pursuing a career in law and where did your interest stem from? I think it's it's a funny answer in that I suppose the answer is when did my mum become interested? But oh. no, in all seriousness, um, I think my mum always made it clear to me that she thought I had the ability to be a lawyer. And I think I uh, sort of after finishing GCSE started to think about what my key strengths were. You know, I, I quite liked debating. I liked supporting people. The confidence wasn't an issue. Loved reading. And so I thought, yeah, you know, law, law seems like something that could be for me. But I didn't want to just launch straight into it. And hence I did the GDL, because I, which is the graduate diploma in law, because actually my first degree is a degree in anthropology and sociology, because I was quite interested in other cultures and, you know, what makes people the way they are and trying to, I think you realise over life that it's really just about relationships. And so it's key to make sure that you understand people properly in order to build successful ones. This actually leads nicely into this other question I was wondering about, which is how has the anthropology and sociology degree come in useful as a solicitor? I in no way planned it, but I have a large proportion of my clients are from the Middle East, which is a culture that is unfamiliar to me. I'm from West Africa and I've lived in London all my life. So it it was amazing to be able to sort of tie in what I've learned through my what I learned through my degree in anthropology with the Saudis that I interact with on a yeah. daily basis you know when I'm in the UAE when I'm in Abu Dhabi and and, and the and Dubai and wherever else you know I'm not sort of sitting there thinking how odd I'm just thinking wow this is different and I understand why this is different and I fully appreciate it and I, I don't think everyone can say that because the understanding might not be there. That That's very interesting, especially because there was this article that Lord Sumption, where he actually recommended that people should pursue a non-law degree before going into law. And that's obviously one opinion. So I was wondering whether you agreed with it or not and why that was. I, th I think you have to study what you'll enjoy because it will reflect as to how successful you are in it. And I think, I don't think there's any one way to it at all. I think you should just do what you enjoy. And so if it's that you, you really think you enjoy the ins and outs of the law and why things are the way they are, then I think law, a law degree is for you. If you're not so interested in that and really you you know you want to be a deal junkie, um, then maybe it, it's something else that you want to study and and why not? That that makes sense, and I I know many many people say that who are interested in just learning about something else like business history just before actually delving into the practicalities of law. And regarding now. We went through how you chose law. So we're obviously within law, there are different professions that you can go for. So why and did you want to become a solicitor? 
Mm. Um, and whether obviously you considered other options as well. Well, yeah, I, I, a number of my friends considered the barrister route and I did also. But to be fair, I thought it was just far too difficult. And I've worked since the age of 15. And I knew that becoming a barrister would mean that I might be poor for a little while. And I wasn't really interested in that. And so, you know, being a solicitor floated my boat a bit more. <laughs> That's a very practical way of looking at it. So once you decided you wanted to become a solicitor, what kind of extracurriculars and work experiences did you pursue and how did you go about finding them? Yeah. So after I completed my A-levels that summer, I thought that although I wasn't embarking on a law degree, it would be good to gain some legal work experience. And so I, my father had used uh, solicitors, a law firm in Mayfair, very small firm. And um, I managed to get the phone number in those days. And this is showing my age. There was a number that you could dial. I can't remember. I think it's like 150 and you could find someone's phone number. Okay. Um, anyway, so I, I found the number that way and just called for about a period of two weeks um, and asked <laughs> to speak to this solicitor. And he and I was told he wasn't there. And at the end of the two weeks, I think the secretary must have got sick of me and put me through. And I asked for some work experience and he said, you know, yes, you can have the work experience, but we will not pay you, but we will pay for your sandwiches. And I thought that's fine. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I went along and did the two weeks. And at the end of the two weeks, I thought, actually, you know, this could be my part-time job whilst I'm at university. And what they had me doing actually was they had a a basement full of wills and uh, they asked me to sort it out. Uh, Sounds very exciting. It was not exciting. It was awful. Um, (laughs) But, 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 uh, you know, it got me in the door. And um, so... At the end, at the end of the day, he came down and sort of to inspect the basement, and and I just said, you know, I've, I've done this, but actually, I, I really want to stay on, and it, it really wasn't an issue. He just sort of said yes, and so I, I, you know, September came, I started university, and every sort of spare hour that I had um, or day, I would work at this firm, and you know, sometimes it was just sort of filling in on reception, so I could read my you know, any, any reading that I had and, and just answer the phone. So it it worked really well. And also I think for me, it was shaping me into, okay, this is what I would need to do to become a lawyer. Another question I had about this was, what was your experience there like? And actually, how did it compare with your expectations about the legal industry? I, I, I didn't have any expectations because you know, no one in my family had worked in the professional services environment before. My mum's a retired midwife, so I really just didn't know what to expect other than what I had seen at the time on TV, which was Ali McBill, which I think I was old enough to know that actually wasn't really <laughs> real. Very, yeah, yeah. Um, I think one thing that stuck out to me when I started was in terms of class, I, I, I clearly was from a different class than, than the people that I was working with in terms of the way they dressed, the way they spoke. And, and that was hard. And how did you manage that? I think, you know, on the first day I realized, OK, I need to, I might need to get a new wardrobe. Um, and, and then, I think there's a struggle of every trainee yeah. at the beginning of the training contract. You just yeah. go on a shopping spree. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, I had to learn that the hard way by just sort of turning up and realizing that actually someone's looking up and down at me, not because they like my clothes, but because I need to change what I'm wearing tomorrow. Um, And 
without and saying anything about without it, just saying look, anything at all just a look um yeah i think part of it was you know me there's just sort of you know if you don't see anyone in an organization that looks like you sometimes you can or sounds like you or shares the same experiences that you have on on an everyday basis you know it, it can make you feel slightly insecure but i would say that i'm glad i had that experience and do you think the legal industry has changed since then it's a good question i think that Yeah, I think it has. I think it has in that when I started out in Mayfair, you know, there were loads of other, you know, uh, boutique law firms around. I don't remember seeing anyone of color working there. Now, you know, you go to the West End and, you know, there are people I talk to, I know that people of color are around. Not so many, but few. I mean, I think it definitely has caught the attention of, you know, you see it in the press all the time. So I think it, it hasn't changed as much as it could have but i think it definitely is on the horizon to change and in terms of changing and maybe changing at a bit of a faster pace now in what ways should it continue changing like what should be done more specifically you think that could help this change happen faster yeah i think that a number of organizations not just law firms have strategies in order to increase the retention of women in order to deal with various other issues that you know they're not happy as to the way they're represented but you don't often see strategies for bame yeah. um and for our and, listeners mm-hmm. uh, bame is the black and minority ethnics that's right yeah. and also you don't often see strategies in place for social inclusion so for people who have come from working class backgrounds who fail or who struggle to feel comfortable in the city i think now you're you're seeing more of that and i think it's being taken more seriously and i think that will help to affect change i think it's clear to me that change will never really come unless it starts at the top of an organization and i think you know it i'm i'm the reverse mentor for the global managing partner andrew borheimer and we talk freely about these issues and and so to me that's comforting because i can see that change will come from the top and filter down but but it's a hard process because it can't be just one person that changes it it has to be that everyone wants it to change i don't i don't think i have an answer but i think strategy is key Okay. And you mentioned that it is a difficult process. So I was wondering whether the difficulty was coming more from people having difficulties changing their mindsets or whether it's more of an implementation issue or what are the key areas from which this difficulty is coming from? I think it's partly education in that if you don't think something's an issue then you fail to address it. And so I think it requires people to understand that this is you know sometimes if you just realize that if you look around and you don't see a large number of bame at senior levels you might just think that they don't want to be there but actually if someone educates you know if there's the education piece that says well it might not be that it might be because of x y and z then i think it 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 will help to inform you and and cause you to be far, um far more brought into the strategy so i think it's about education i don't think it's a lack of willingness I think it's that sometimes people are just not aware or if they are I think one one other point is race is an uncomfortable topic to talk about you know people just don't quite know where to start and I think in in the UK people would rather think it's polite rather just to not mention anything than to actually just hit something head on is my experience yeah I think I think that that covers my thoughts 
I think that's definitely very insightful and helpful for our listeners as well. Just moving on to kind of the next stage. So we've talked about your interest in law, wanting to be a solicitor, how you went about gaining the legal experience. So I was wondering next, when did you start applying for training contracts? And what was that experience like, just learning from application to to application? Yeah, Um, I started applying when I started law school. So I think I started applying once. Actually, that's not true. I think I started applying in the last year of university. And I think looking back now, I so wish I had a mentor. I I so wish I had somebody who could have just guided me a bit and said, actually, on the form, what they're really looking for is that to do that and, you know, double check it for typos. I mean, it might might seem like common sense, but actually when you're young, you just think, well, I'll get as many out as I can. But I, I so wish I had a mentor to sort of guide me through that. I didn't. And so actually, you know, I did complete quite a few application forms and they weren't successful. And when I, and, and then I started the GDL and I applied for a number of training contracts. I was fortunate to get some a vacation scheme at, at another firm. And that was fantastic because actually that that really boosted my confidence actually. And then I went through to apply for a training contract there, didn't get it. And then I think the week after um, started at A&O and I remember crying like so I was ever so upset that I didn't get that training contract and then applied to A&O for a paralegal uh, position, got that, but it still felt like my life was over. But then realized once I applied for the A&O training contract and got it, that actually this was absolutely what I wanted. And I'm ever so glad that I didn't get that training contract because A&O has uh, been, I've had, you know, I'm having, I've been here 11 and a bit years, fantastic experience, great opportunities. The other firm could in no way have matched that. Yeah, many times I think it's a bit of a blessing in disguise. I remember when I was applying as well, I I did these vacation schemes and there was this one firm that at the time I thought I really wanted and I didn't get the training contract after it. And I felt so heartbroken. But then afterwards, I got the ANO one and I just realized that was never actually what where my place would have been. Yeah. So I think it's something that many applicants kind of face and it's quite daunting. Yeah. Yeah. The rejection and. Yeah. I remember hitting the floor, opening the letter at my mum's front door and hitting the floor, just feeling so upset and deflated, just thinking, well, you know, who's going to say yes now? And, you know, I look back on that and I I wouldn't say I can laugh, but I just smile to myself thinking, well, you know, you know, I'm here now. And I suppose, yeah, that is encouragement to anyone who's trying because actually it's extremely hard. And we'll come back to your experience as a paralegal. But before that, I know you did the part-time GDL because you had a full-time job at the law firm in Mayfair. So I was wondering, how did you manage your the full-time job and doing the GDL at the same time? With great difficulty. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I think law school started at six o'clock and I finished work at 5.30 and I had a little... Initially, I thought 6 a.m. <laughs> 6 p.m. And I had a little trolley, like, you know, oh, you know, old age pensioners often carry yeah, one. Yeah. Well, actually, to be honest, even my sister carries one now instead of, you know... It's you very have practical. To pay, yeah, and you have to pay for plastic bags these days. So I used to carry a little trolley uh, with all my law books in and um, I would run from Mayfair to Tottenham Court Road uh, because I went to um, 
the law school on Store Street. I don't know if it's still there. And yeah, and I, and, and then I would be there till I think about 9.30, lectures finished at about 9.30. Um, I'd go home, read a bit, and then go to work the next day. And I think at the end of it, I just thought, actually, this is just, this is really actually really tiring. And I'd prefer to work uh, I prefer to study the LPC full time and I'll just quit my job. Um, and, and I did. And I think, you know, it was quite scary because I thought, OK, how will I finance the LPC? And so I took a career development loan because, you know, I, the LPC hadn't been paid for. I didn't have a training contract. And at the time I had been baking cakes just sort of for friends. Um, and they had always said, you know, why don't you try and sell sell them to people? And I thought it was ridiculous. But actually, uh, the day I handed in my notice, I saw a, a shop opening up which is on just opposite Liverpool Street Station. It's called Wrap It Up. Yeah, I know it. I know it. And yeah, and, and I just sort of said to them, do you have any desserts? And they said, no. And I said, well, will you sell my cakes? And they said, well, you know, we haven't tried them. So I said, yeah. I'll bring them in tomorrow. Um, okay. I brought in a few flavours and they... What flavours were banana, they? Banana, pineapple and cream. And I can't remember what else. I think marble. <laughs> and so I um, gave them to them to sample. And by the end of the day, they said they would they would buy them, and they and they were selling out. And and they sort of then started to uh, provide a service whereby they would offer corporates, you know, lunch. Yeah. Um, so that then increased the sales of my cakes even more. And that was what funded the LPC. It, so, the, so the the career development loan paid for the fees and my day-to-day living was the cakes. How much did you have to bake every day? Fortunately, my mum had quite a big oven. And um, I, I think I, I can't remember how many slices I, I had to bake. If I were to say, I'd be lying. But yeah. all I remember is I had five Kenwood chefs. I don't know if you know what they are, but it's like no. a, it's, a, you know, an indu- it's a cake mixer. Okay. Um, and so I had, I had one. And then I bought four more from eBay. And then I, and I, so one would be doing banana cake, one would be doing pineapple and cream, one would be yeah. doing marble. And I would just put them in the oven as and when. And yeah, that, that funded the LPC. Um, and it, it, it was extremely tiring. But to be honest, it's almost like working full time again. Yeah, and it was it was just a great experience, to be honest. I mean, now I'm just very curious to taste your cakes. <laughs> well, I have no time for it anymore. <laughs> and so then you, you did the LPC as well and you apply for the paralegal role at ANO. Why did you choose to apply for a paralegal role? And did you think it prepare you well for training contract applications? Because I had taken out a career development loan and I knew that if I, I, I needed to start paying it back. And so I needed a job. Yeah. Um, and also I thought if I get into the door of a law firm, then hopefully, you know, it might help me to apply for a training contract. And so I just saw it as the backdoor route to a training contract, if I'm honest. And I just applied. And, um, you know, fortunately, I was successful in getting the job. And how did you think it it helped you? So you then started as a paralegal. How did you think it helped you for the actual training contract application? Yeah, it was huge because most trainees, when they start at ANO, they don't really have a client relationship. Uh, They certainly have no relationship with the partners that they start sitting next to at the beginning of their seat. Whereas, you know, I paralegaled for three years. And by the time I finished paralegaling, I had very deep rooted relationships with some of my clients. I had sat in the same department for three years. So they sort of said to me, you know, if, if when you qualify, if you'd like to come back to this department, we would consider you. So I think it definitely, it, it I feel like it gave me a head start actually. 
and happy ending you did end up qualifying there so following on from that though i know that your training contract was supposed to start in 2008 but we all know the financial crisis was then and it was then postponed to 2010 how did you manage that postponement and what did you do in the meantime? Yeah, I think it was difficult because I was a bit older than most trainees because I had done the GDL part-time, so over two years. I, I had them paralegaling. So, But I think what I decided to do was just to continue doing what I was doing because actually it was great experience. It, I, you know, I, I was given a lot of responsibility. I was able to, you know, uh, email clients directly and I was developing relationships. So I just thought, let me continue doing that. And actually the money wasn't bad. So I just thought, and, and you know, the, the people were that I worked with, that I still work with to today were very nice. Mm -hmm. So it, it didn't seem like a bad offer to me. I think the only difficulty was that every six months you would see trainees coming in and going out and qualifying and they were often younger than me and that was quite difficult and I think slightly depressing actually mm -hmm. um, and there's just nothing you can do you have to wait yeah well there's a there's a lot of value in just learning patience I guess and agreed. the earlier you learn it yeah. I think the better it is agreed and with hindsight is there anything in your journey to becoming a lawyer that you would have done differently I think I would have sought out help at, at an earlier stage. I think I would have loved to have, I think I would have loved to have a bit more guidance as to even use a mentor. I just didn't know. I think that's the key thing for me. I think just having someone who's walked the path that you're about to walk is really useful. I, and I just didn't have that at such an early stage. I think had I had that, I would have made some decisions differently. Okay. And regarding the actual application process, how do you think it has become more accessible since you applied? And are there any improvements you'd like to see? When I applied, I don't know what the application, I know what the application process was, but I don't know what went behind it. Okay. But what I do know now is, you know, I'm on the panel of um, trainee, um, I'm, I'm on the panel for interviewing trainees. And you know, I think the aim is to make that more diverse. I think in terms of the universities that ANO goes out to, that's certainly more diverse than it was 11 years ago. And that's fantastic because we're, we're picking up a broader range of talent, which is what we want. I think, I think those are the improvements that I have, see, or have, I have seen. I think, unfortunately, I don't know enough about when I applied other than what I saw through the form yeah. um, and the person who interviewed me to be able to have, a, you know, to do a proper comparison for you. And what other improvements would you like to see in the future? I think it's difficult, but I think some thought needs to go into the criteria that is um, put out to accept trainees and query whether we're excluding talent that is not so obviously seen through grades. And I think we have a diverse range of training people who interview trainees but it could be better i think i think those two things actually i think we seek to and we have started to put things in place to um, to mentor vac scheme students who are from ethnic minority backgrounds and i think that helps because i mean i remember sort of attending a workshop for some vac scheme students and um, sort of saying, please come and talk to me if, 
it, you know, if you want to email me. And I remember a number of them coming to me and saying, oh, it's just nice to know that it's possible to be BAME and to be senior here. So I think that definitely, you know, it, it, it's something that we seek to do to make it to, 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 to be a bit louder about the fact that it is possible you know, to be BAME, to be successful, that A&O is a place where you can thrive if yeah. you have talent. That, that is very encouraging. And I was wondering uh, if you had any final remarks or advice for our listeners before moving on to the fire round of three off-the-wall questions. Yeah, um, I was speaking with um, Andrew Borheimer in our reverse mentoring session and I asked him the same question. And I, I, and what he said stuck with me and I'll say it to you, be yourself, you're plenty good enough. I, I think that's all I would say because I, I think that is very true. You're not here by mistake if you get in and you are just as good as the person next to you. Um, and if you're not accepted, it's not necessarily because you're rubbish, but actually just because the comp competition is so fierce yeah. and you'll shine somewhere else. That's very helpful. And I think, and I do think it's very true. I think when I was applying as well, what the kind of the more applications you do, the more you realize that the more honest you are in them, the better you'll actually, the result will be. But I think it's a bit scary in the beginning because you think law firms are looking for a particular type of person and you just want to look like that. And Agreed. now just moving on to the fire round of three off the wall questions. The first one, is quite lighthearted, I thought, especially uh, because there was a news headline that I think was quite funny. And it is, what would you name your boat if you had one? And I'm referring to the McBoatface one, <laughs> Boaty McBoatface. I would call it, uh, it would have to be called Three Things and it would be the names of my uh, so my my daughter's called Sarah my son's called Josh and I hope that we have another child so whatever that child is called the boat would be called <laughs> that would be a, a, a mouthful when yeah, it, it, really, it really would be yeah <laughs> um so the other off the wall question I was thinking about is what would be much better if you could just change its color it's a difficult one, I know. I, I spent a bit of time thinking about it myself when I was writing them. Do you know, I think it's it, it's a bit of a stupid answer, but I'm a vegetarian and I love vegetables, but my kids don't. And I think <laughs> I think broccoli would be better if you could just change its colour. It would just look more appealing. Yeah, I think so. I think bro <laughs> and cauliflower. <laughs> <laughs> if, just, if they just look like candies. Yeah, I think, maybe. I think it could help. <laughs> And the last one is uh, at the end of every episode, we're going to have recommendations from our guest speakers to our listeners. So I was wondering if you had any book, film, movie or music, any other cultural recommendation for our listeners? Not really. I think what gets me by is trying to separate myself from work. And the only way I can do that is... I'm a Christian. I go to church every Sunday. So, you know, and I basically say I won't check my phone until I've read my Bible. And that helps me to kind of like separate work from. And that's the but I mean, I don't think that would be relevant to many people, but who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a book recommendation. Yeah, it's a book recommendation. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been lovely having you. And I'm sure that our listeners have found your insights and advice very, very valuable. Cool. Um, so thanks a lot for coming. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. 
Don't forget to tune in for our next episode in which we will talk about the first stage in the application process, meaning the pre-application experience, how to go about gaining them, how do you even know what kind of pre-application experience to gain. And in order to answer all of these questions, I will have with me two trainees, Maria John and Joe Fallon, as well as one of our graduate recruitment specialists, Ben Mould. Thank you all for listening. And remember to follow us on social media and check the graduate website. We have a lot of interesting content that we're posting regularly. See you all next time.